I stood before you as I do today on the Lord's Day, and what I did was I, I sought to preach through the Psalm 46. And so as you are turning to Psalm 46, I pray that some of it will actually bring up some reminders of what we've in fact already covered as a body. But it was one of those sermons that I hate the most when I got up here, because it was one of those sermons that I realized there was absolutely no way I could convey the fullness and depth and richness of this text through my bumbling words. After all, in the book of Psalms, John Piper describes the Psalms as the songbook of the church that teaches you how to think and how to feel. John MacArthur describes the Psalms as the theology book of the Israelite people. Dale Johnson describes the Psalms as the theology book of the church, in which we see the full spectrum of human emotions and experience. And that is a lot to try and cover in 45 minutes. And so I'm actually very, very thankful for each of these descriptions, and all of them, I believe, have some very important truth. And yet, I am even more grateful for the opportunity to come back and we get to go even deeper into Psalm 46 together. Not often do you get to do that, but I am looking forward to getting to walk through this text again. And so uh, the psalmist, uh, just to introduce the text, is once again, and seemingly continually, in a world of ending circumstances, with all earthly supports and helps that have melted away. And the psalmist yet believes, seems to believe, that he has all of the help he could ever need in the midst of it. Not merely to be delivered from danger, but even if he is not delivered from danger, he has God. And that is the most practical help he could ever need. That he, in fact, no matter the world falling apart around him, has perfect peace through it. That's the text we'll be entering in today. And I want to answer that question of how. How is he able to have perfect peace? Peace through this. Well, months ago, I walked expositionally through this text, and we showed how the psalmist explains at least three things. Number one, the psalmist shows what it means to have your refuge be in God Himself. Number two, he seeks to woo our hearts of the joys and hopes in fixing our refuge to God. And third, he tells us how we are to join Him in finding refuge in God Himself. In essence, I broke it down to say the what of finding refuge in God, the why of finding refuge in God, and the how. Now, today, I hope to further explain this text. Because there are so many significant details running throughout the psalm, one of them being who it is that the psalmist finds refuge in. Who is the God that we are actually called to find refuge in, in Psalm 46? So would you follow along with me? We're going to read Psalm 46 aloud as you follow along, and we're going to learn about this God. Psalm 46, to the choir master of the sons of Korah, according to Alamoth, a song. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Selah. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, 
the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage. The kingdoms totter. He utters his voice. The earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. Come, behold the works of the Lord. How he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars to cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. Now one thing I'd like to point out is that through a brief overview reading of this text, I found at least 16 different attributes of God that are on vivid display in the psalmist's faith. As reading through it, just simply passing it by, I can find about 16 very clear statements of who God is, of who it is that we are to take refuge in. And I'm actually sure that there are more. But just due to that quick glance, we can know one thing. That the psalmist knows who his God is. And this drives how he sees his circumstances. And how his emotions then respond to his life. I want to propose to you a statement. This is a statement of fact. That we see expressed all over the pages of scripture. People... Do not live according to the raw reality of their life. They live on the basis of their interpretation of their circumstances. Let me just give a quick practical example. I just went over and dropped my son Bennett, a little little sploosh, over in in the nursery. How do you think he responded when daddy set him on the ground? Did you know that I was actually trying to feed him to live lions? Because that's how he interpreted it. A very good example of the fact that people do not live according to their reality. But according to their interpretation of their reality. Is easily seen in our children. And yet I would also say it's easily seen in God's word. You see, for the the psalmist, for example, he's describing the world falling apart. And yet what does he say? We will not fear. Though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea. Now, for an outsider looking in, this would not make sense. This would, in fact, warrant some panic. And why should someone not be panicking, though the world around them is collapsing? Well, the simple answer is, we do not live, nor do we feel, according to the raw reality of life. Rather... We live according to how we interpret our circumstances. Now, this then means that something else must be true as well. That we see expressed all over Scripture. And it is this. What we believe to be true about God is one of the most important aspects of daily life. Proverbs 8.13 tells us, The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. 
this is the description of when someone fears the Lord, meaning they stand in reverence and awe of Him, they would not dare love evil when He so greatly despises it. We see this principle lived out in a million different ways in a single day, do we not? What a man thinks about God will either restrain him from sin or inflame his love of it. Just like thieves don't walk into a police station in order to try and steal their equipment. Why? They know the, th- the authority stands nearby. Rather, they slink about in shadows. They hide online in scams hoping to not be caught. So also, a man who believes that God, that there is no God, will not hate sin. They rather will say something in attuned to Psalm ten thirteen. God will not call me to an account. For example, a father. A father will smile and act like all is well in public, and yet he can be a raging tyrant to his family, can't he? So much so that his children would rather be anywhere but with him. And why does he have no problem with this? He thinks that God doesn't see. He thinks that God will not call to an account, but should that same father come to realize who the God is that he claims to serve, he will race to repentance when even just his heart begins to bubble with anger. For he knows the Lord is a just God, jealous for his little ones. And should anyone cause them to stumble, it would be better that he had never been born. You see, if we want to know what drives the confidence of this psalmist, why it is and how it is he takes refuge in the Lord. If we want to know how to steady our hearts, even when the world falls down around us, if we want to know what it is to take refuge in God, the beauty of why we can find refuge in God and how to go about this, we ought to also know who it is in whom we take refuge. And so I hope to point out all 16 different attributes of God today. I'm kidding. I'm going to point out four. But I hope that that fear will cause some patience as we walk through at least four of the attributes of God that we see put on display in this psalm today. And I do pray that the Lord would use them to change everything about the way that we see our daily lives, that we may live according to who He is. Number one, turn with me to verse one, where we will see the goodness of God. The first attribute we'll talk about today is the goodness of God. Look to verse 1. How does the psalmist describe God? He is a refuge. This is a meaning of safe space, a place in which to hide. We see that he calls him a help. He is in fact moved to provide care and assistance to those in need. We see in verse 4 that God's presence with his people in fact erupts in their hearts with streams of joy and gladness. Look to verse 9. You see, we see in verse 9 that God is the one who brings about the ends of what? Wars. He brings about peace. This is not a vindictive, harsh and evil God. We see the attribute of God's goodness proclaimed in this psalm. Through and through. He is a good God. He is one that people want to draw near to. He is, in fact, filled with help. He is merciful, and he brings, he loves bringing peace and good gifts. We see this confirmed in the rest of Scripture. 
For instance, we see Jesus when he is preaching the Sermon of the Mount in Matthew 7. He describes who his father is. He says, which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or, or if he asks for a fish, we'll give him a serpent. Well, then if then you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give you good things to those who ask him? Jesus makes it clear. God the Father is in fact a good God. He gives good gifts. Again, we read in Matthew 5 in that same sermon. Verse 44. But I say to you, says Jesus, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Why? So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Well, who is he? Well, for he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust. What is Jesus' point here? God is a good God. we see a second attribute. The omnipotence of God. Now before you get nervous, omnipotence really has a simple meaning. Omnipotence is merely a fancy theology word to mean that God has all of the power. God does not have most of it. God does not have some of it. God is not pursuing the power. God has all of it. All the power is in his hands. Look at verses 2 and 3. Therefore we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. What does the psalmist say God is up against? This is no small trial, nor is there some kind of light burden here on his people. Rather, the world itself is falling apart. As we see in verses 5 and 6, that God is in fact in the midst of his people. And his very presence alone makes them unmovable. There is meaning, no force that can come up against him. There is no force that can even cause him to budge or sway. There is no might that can cause him to simply lack his strength from where he stands. In fact, God is not only up against the entire world, but he is up against all of the nations. We see that the entire power of the world is seemingly united against the Lord. And what is the sure outcome of their rebellion? Read. In verse 6, the nations rage, the kingdoms totter. Imagine Little Daniel. And he runs up to Dylan Ardoff. And he's going to take him down. And that kid throws his body against Dylan with all his strength. What happens to Daniel? You're going to see someone totter. As he's thrown back by the mere force of propelling his own strength. Against that which has all the strength. Now we see he utters his voice. And what happens to the earth? The earth melts. This has the idea that just as God spoke all things and into existence and, and all things jumped to obey his word. 
so also. When he speaks, the world will melt like a molding clay for him to do whatever his power should direct. All of the power in the entire world can be united against him, and it has the same effect against him, against his will, as a wall of sand trying to stop a tsunami. It's less than nothing. For you kids here today, all right, kiddos, listen up. This has the idea of like when you're playing with a ball of Play-Doh, and you build it and fashion it into something you like, and let's just say it doesn't look like the way you want it. You know how easy it is just to take your elbow and just kind of mash that back down into nothing? The earth melts as the Play-Doh molds beneath your weight. In the same way God has all the power, there is nothing that he cannot do that agrees with his will. No armies may unite against him and expect a victory. He is omnipotent. There is nothing that can challenge him or limit his will in any way. Daniel describes this well in Daniel 4, 35, saying, All of the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? This is the same omnipotent God who Jesus describes in John 10, 28. When he says, when the Lord saves someone, he gives them eternal life. And no one may snatch them out of his hand. The God of Psalm 46 is omnipotent. He has all the power. And there is no force nor enemy that may unite against him in any way to limit his will. Whoever stands against the Lord can be absolutely confident of their downfall. But the psalmist runs to the Lord. For he has counted the cost and he will entrust himself fully to the God who has all of the power. Next, we learn of the imminence of God. Imminence. Again, a fancy word with a very simple meaning. The Gospel Coalition defines imminence, the imminence of God, I think, well. As they say, the imminence of God is to say that God is present in time and space. He is near us. You see, God is a God who is near. Read in verse 1. As the psalmist says, God is our refuge, a very present help in trouble. You see, he's not a God who is simply good, and he's not a God who is simply powerful and yet is, is kind of far off. He spun the earth into its existence and, and took, a, took a step back. Rather, how does the psalmist describe him? He is very present. We see in verse 5, we read that he is in the midst of his people. When trouble comes, he isn't looking for a ride out of there. He is with his people even in their affliction, even in times of deep, sorrowful trouble. I remember one of the most awkward moments of my life happened in high school. And I was going to be going to homecoming with a relatively large group of friends. And one of the couples in that large group of friends, we're all couples, we're all dating someone in the group. It's it very weird. One of the couples that was going with us decided to end their relationship the day before homecoming. That's fine. No problem. But they decided to still come. 
with our group together. Not a single person in that car wanted to be there. It was the most awkward time in the world. And when sorrow and trouble showed itself at this happy affair, we were all like, I'm done. (laughs) I don't want anything to do with this. But it is not so with the Lord. You see, Psalm 34, 18 says, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. In Matthew 8, 28 through 34, we read that the demons plead with Jesus to be sent away from him. They would even long to go into pigs lest they have to be near to him and face what he may do with them. But God is not a God who is far away. He is is near to us even when things are hard, even when we are brokenhearted, when what we are experiencing is awkward and would make other people blush and not want to look. He does not flee like demons to get away from us. What a man cannot stomach to look at, God runs toward, that he might be near you in the midst of the filth. In verse 7 and verse 11, we see the chorus of this psalm. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. When Joseph, the son of Jacob, was sent by his brothers into slavery, we read some of the sweetest words in the Bible in Genesis 39, 2. But the Lord was with Joseph. You see, the psalmist knows that never once have the people of God walked alone. He is the God of nearness, of intimate closeness. He is with his people. And we see this attribute come to its most vivid display in Jesus Christ, do we not? He whose name is Emmanuel, God with us. He who, though being God himself, chose to forgo the eternal glory in which he lived. He stepped out of the unapproachable light to become a great light to this dark earth. He drew near, and not merely to the Israelites, nor to the righteous people, who have everything in their life all neat and tidy and clean. We see Jesus actually tell us who he's come to draw near himself in Luke 5, 30-32. It reads, and the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. You see, the psalmist of Psalm 46 knows his God. And he knows that he is a good God who is near. He runs to the Lord to be his fortress, for he knows the Lord. The refuge is with him. The imminence of God is seen in Psalm 46. Lastly, we learn the attribute of God's sovereignty. God's sovereignty means simply this, that he is in control 
of all that comes to pass. There are no rogue molecules in his universe. There is not a single rebel atom in the entire history or future of creation that is not working in his control for his purposes of his desired end. Look with me to the last verse in verse 8. Sorry, that's not the last verse. Look with me to verse 8. When the psalmist calls us to pay attention to God's works. Come. Behold the works of the Lord. How he's brought desolations on the earth. He reminds us of who is in control. He reminds us. He calls his audience possibly even to look back to Egypt. Where God laid waste the most powerful nation in the known world. With things like water, hail, bugs, and frogs. He calls his audience to possibly think of the desolations that God even brought against his own people as he sent them into the slavery of the Babylonians, that they might be turned back and brought in repentance to him. The psalmist tells us in verse 9 who it is that brings about peace and war, who it is that causes the wheels on the Egyptian chariots to be clogged with mud, that they would be trapped in the Red Sea as God brings the waters crashing down upon them. He tells us in verse 10 that our hearts must stop running after other gods and return to Him, for His will is certain to pass. He will be glorified among the nations. We see this attribute affirmed. Throughout the entirety of Scripture. But few are quite so comforting as in the New Testament. Read the sure promises of God's sovereignty, His control over all that comes to pass in Romans 8 28 through 29. And we know that for those who love God, that's an important clarification, that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose, for those whom He foreknew, He also predestined for what? To be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So certain is the salvation of God's people. Not only the salvation, but the sanctification of God's people that Paul speaks of it as if it's already past tense. As if the fact that God has spoken it has already made it come to pass. Not only in God's salvation for his people. But as sure in everything. All things. Every and all things. His desired end will happen. That those who are in Christ Jesus would be conformed to his image. Meaning they would change from the inside out to look more like him. Read in Acts 17. This affirms the attribute of God's sovereignty in verse 26 saying and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling places that they should seek God perhaps feel their way toward him and find him yet he is a God of imminence yet he is not actually far from each of us For in him we live and move and have our being. 
This is to say, we have our existence completely and ever in the sovereign hand of God. We breathe because he allows hydrogen to remain bonded to oxygen. Fire burns because he allows the chemical changes that persist with that oxygenization to be sustained. It is he that causes fire to continue to burn. And he holds the whole world ever steady in its place. Hebrews 1.3 describes Jesus by saying, He upholds the universe. By the word of his power. The God of Psalm 46 is a refuge. Not because he will try hard to keep you safe. But because he is the one who holds the world in its place. Why can the world be falling down around the psalmist? And he responds simply by saying we will not fear. Because the psalmist does not live in this world according to his circumstances. He does not. He lives according he does not live according to the raw reality of what is happening to him. His emotions run according to what he knows is true of God. His theology brims with the knowledge of his God. Thus he runs to him as his refuge. He is kept in perfect peace, for his soul is set on the unchanging God, the good God, the omnipotent God, the imminent God. The sovereign God. Now, what might this look like in our, in our context? What does this look like today? Well, I've actually asked permission to share this story, expecting that one day this, this time would come. Uh, and the opportunity has showed itself, so I'm very thankful I did. Uh, one morning, I came into the office, and I was walking past the, the back coffee area, area in the back offices, and suddenly the sound of my footsteps switched from tap-tap to splish-splash. Which meant someone else's job just got a lot harder, but not mine. Because no one is going to want me to try and deal with any broken parts in this building. So immediately I start sending pictures to our lovely Marty Necessary. Marty then comes into the office later that morning, and perhaps with a slightly sarcastic smile on her face, she told me about her day and how it had begun. And it had actually begun with a list of one thing after another that had been going wrong, either in her car, in her husband's car, at their home, or with this building. Now, in case you haven't noticed, we do have a bit of an older building, and things begin to go wrong when they age. But what was amazing to me was that as Marty was sharing... All of these things, it was almost like Job, where it's like, well, and then this happened. And then but while they were still talking, this happened. And then while they were still talking, this happened. But what was amazing was that when she said these things, she just laughed. And she said to me, in all honesty, she said, and that is when I have to just remember that God is sovereign. And I guess this is what he has for me today. Now, these may not seem like really big deals, right? These are small problems. Cars, houses, buildings, water softeners. They're small problems. And yet, is it not often that in the little things we see what will be true of our hearts in the big things? Is it not true that when Jesus betrayed, Je pardon, when Judas betrayed Jesus, that's an important clarification, when Judas betrayed Jesus to the Pharisees and sold the Savior of the world for silver, was it not first, according to John 12, 6, which says, He, meaning Judas, s said this, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. 
And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. You see, it's the little details that we see what's going to be true in the big one. What a heart of faith was shown from Marty necessary that morning. And why? Because she knew that God was sovereign. And so it changed how she saw her circumstances. It led her to worship. Rather than spiritually tailspin and fret. One thing we ought to learn from this theology of Psalm 46. Is that the most practical thing you can do in this life. Is get to know who God is. This is done through the Holy Spirit applying his word to my soul. I'm not saying that if you have a good theology you'll never worry about anything. But this psalmist certainly does show us that our hearts respond to life not based on circumstances, but based on our interpretation of them. We live this life not based on the raw details of our day, but we live them in accordance to who we actually believe God to be in that moment. And this brings me to perhaps a point of just caution. That I've been told by many pastors before me, and I think it would be pertinent to pass along, that It is of great concern when someone can talk a big game theologically, but they can't live out the basic principles of the Christian faith. When a man can debate the highest issues of apologetics or can weave together a perfect description of the aseity of God, but he can't seem to love that God that he defends so strongly, enough to put to death his wee little pet sins that he coaxes to sleep, causing his conscience to ignore them. He ought to know that he's not in a safe place. A man may be able to smile in public. He may even seem chipper and encouraging to all who pass him by. But if he is an unrepentant and hard-hearted one to all who know him up close, he ought to know that one cannot be equal to the other. He may smile at the crowd, but gives himself over to bitter anger and resentment to all who would dare cross him. Be warned, a true love of God, a biblical knowledge of who he is, is not merely intellectual. It will show itself in how I walk daily in faith. So as we move forward to consider some areas just of application, I want to start by simply asking, how do you see your knowledge of God living itself out in your daily life? It can sometimes be so easy for me to kind of nod along with passages like this saying, well, of course God is sovereign, but then still in the moment my heart runs towards worry when things are unsure or anger when I'm not getting what I believe I want. I would encourage you to spend some time in prayer before the Lord. Ask him to help you to grow in your understanding of who he is. Might you say, would would I know the Lord the way this psalmist does? that I might respond as he. And then give yourself to study of him. I've recently had a front row seat in many of your lives, watching as you respond to hard life circumstances in some wonderfully faithful ways. I've watched your faith lived out as you show in the big things and in the little things who you truly believe your refuge to be. It has been a sparkling drink of refreshing water to a thirsty But for those of you who don't know this God, those of you who are really maybe not even sure why you're here, 
let me encourage you that this God is knowable. His glory transcends our understanding. Yet, He is the God that's not far from any of us. He is indeed near. This world is not simply here for your enjoyment or for you to kind of eke out a small slice of happiness in a brief existence otherwise filled with sorrows. This world exists for the glory of one God, and He has made Himself known. He has revealed Himself, and knowing Him will change every inch of your existence, even how you feel and what you hope in when the world falls down around you. For those of you who do know this God, for those of you who love the God of Psalm 46, would you meditate on who He is? Truly, I say to you, the most practical thing you will ever do in this life is study who God says He is. Study His attributes. Meditate on His law. As the psalmist says, come and behold the works of the Lord. Renew your mind of who He is. Repent in the areas of your life that you've not allowed His attributes to transform and renew your mind. to, To change your responses to life. Has your heart run to anxiousness as political parties careen into chaos? Have you run to anger, retaliation, bitterness, and self-love when you experience relationship strife? When your wife cuts you with her words, does your heart allow the attributes of, of God to mold how you respond to her? When you experience chronic pain or illness that will not end, Do you bend your soul before God's word to understand who he still is, even in the shadows of suffering? Where do you run when prodigal children continue to wander? When you wake up and suddenly you're old and think, wait, when did that happen? (laughs) Do you mourn and wail and fight the effects of aging at every turn? How could you instead allow your knowledge of who God is to actually transform your heart's response to these real struggles of life? For your heart will respond to this life based on who you believe him to be. Even in that moment. So let us join with the psalmist, knowing that our Lord will be exalted in all the earth and say, so let it also be through me. Let us sing with him, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. One last example for you to consider of another heart responding to fear that I recently encountered. Yesterday morning, my family was sitting at the little kitchen counter doing our typical Saturday morning routine of calling Mimi and Papa to chat. And in the midst of the conversation, at one point, I jokingly I was joking, I was joking, I jokingly mentioned an article that I had read that suggested many people are using the migration tension at the southern border of Texas to push for the state of Texas to secede from the Union, meaning that it would become its own country and immediately cause a national civil war. Neither of my children found this humorous. Uh, neither of them found any humor, in fact, in it. And I believe, to be quite honest, I accidentally encouraged some fear in their hearts. And yet I have to say that my son Elias's reaction 
was a beautiful description of what we see in Psalm 46. Elias perks up and says, Daddy, if that happens, we would need to call some defenders to protect us. But Daddy, do you know who we always have as a defender and can always trust? I asked him, who, buddy? With a little mischievous grin and a twist of the eyebrow, he says, oh, God. Amen, my dear son. Amen. God is the refuge of his saints. When storms of sharp distress invade, ere we can offer our complaints, behold his presence. He is present with his aid. Let mountains from their seats be hurled down to the deep and buried there. Convulsions shake the solid world. Our faith shall never yield to fear. That sacred stream, thine holy word, that all our raging fear controls. Sweet peace, thy promises afford, and give new strength to fainting souls. Would you pray with me? Father God, we thank you for this book, for the Psalms, for the broken image bearers, who wrote it for us. We thank you, Lord, that it reveals more than anything who you are. And Lord God, would, would you work in our hearts to live not on the basis of our circumstances, but would your word guard our interpretation of our experience? might as we run to refuge our souls in you. Might we know you the way our psalmist does. Might we love you as he loves you. Might we fear you as he fears you. And Lord God, would you work in us as we stand in awe and adoration of who you are. Lord, would our souls sing with the psalmist. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah and amen.